Good morning, everyone. Today, we're continuing to ask the question, what truly matters in life? I'm sure different thoughts will come to all of us. Uh, we've been doing this for a few weeks now, and we've all had a chance to, to ponder what, what actually does truly matter in life. And some things that we think will be the same as each other, and some things will be different to each other. But um, the, the, what we're basing this series around is actually what the Bible tells us truly matters to God. So I just want to pray for us before we move on. God, I thank you that you are with us. I thank you that you are for us, Lord. I thank you that you are wanting to grow us, that you are wanting to build your church, Lord God. We just look to you now and we say, come have your way in our hearts, our minds and our lives. Come and honour your name and glorify your name in us, that we ourselves may honour you and glorify you. We ask this in your name, O God. Amen. Okay, so what we're looking at today is uh, something that actually affects our whole Christian walk. Um, it's said to be the point where the good news of the gospel clashes most violently with the wisdom of this world. I just said it again. So it's said to be the point where the good news of the gospel of God clashes most violently with the wisdom of the world. So let's turn to today's passage, which is Mark 10. Um, and the context for this is Jesus is just walking to Jerusalem as with his 12 disciples. And he's just finished explaining to them that he, he's going to be put to death there. But after three days, he'll be raised to life again. OK, so it says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him. So at this point, it's just those two disciples talking to Jesus. Um, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptised with the baptism with which I am baptised? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism of which I am baptised, you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is of those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about the question, but what would you like to be remembered for? It's a sobering thought to think about, really. What will people remember you for? And actually, there's a really sobering question to go with it, and that's, do these things truly matter? Have we and are we given our lives to the things that truly matter? Things that will bear eternal fruit. Here we see James and John are after greatness. They want to have the place of highest honour next to Jesus in his glory. That's how they want to be seen and remembered by people. They were anticipating Jesus becoming the new leader of the Jewish nation at Jerusalem and bringing the Jewish people back into freedom as God's chosen people. They wanted the place of greatness that they felt they deserved. You would have thought that they would have learned a lesson from their previous encounter in Mark 9 when the disciples had been arguing amongst themselves which one of them is the greatest. And Jesus tells them then, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
it would appear that James and John missed the point. Maybe they were so caught up in their perceived greatness that they missed the lesson altogether. With this in mind, it's amazing seeing Jesus' response to them in today's passage in Mark 10. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't ask them why they didn't listen last time, but he's gentle and gracious with them. He moulds their understanding of greatness to what true greatness is. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say greatness is wrong, don't pursue it. But he says that their understanding of greatness is wrong and so aims to redefine it. I wonder how many of us have a wrong understanding of what greatness is. Do we have ideals in our life that we hold to as we think that's what a truly great life looks like? But the question is, what is the foundation of these views? If you really delve down and look at the root of them, as this really matters, no matter how good our ideals are, if they are built on the wrong foundation or the wrong roots, they will not bear fruit. If a tree looks healthy, but its root system below ground is rotten, it will not bear healthy fruit. And in fact, the tree itself will not last very long. So how does Jesus define true greatness? Well, let's look again at verse 42. It's worth noting here, though, that all 12 disciples are now being addressed. Somehow the other 10 disciples heard the conversation that James and John were having with Jesus. And it says they became indignant with James and John. It says that, that they were angry at them that they thought they were wrong in asking Jesus for this privilege. And perhaps even in their minds, they thought it was unfair that they didn't think to ask Jesus for this privilege themselves. It would, appear, it would appear that pride might have been an issue for all of the disciples. So Jesus then calls his disciples to come to him so he can talk to them. So this is picking up, as I said, from verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. At first, what Jesus says see, might seem quite odd to us. In many ways, it's countercultural to, to us today, and it certainly was counterculturally to Jesus's day and to what the disciples knew then. We often see self-help guides or hear people say, it's people who help themselves that make it in life. Uh, or there's that phrase that we've probably heard all too often, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. So what Jesus is saying here is very challenging. Verse 45 is key to our understanding of this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is modelling what kingdom life is. Jesus is laying down the standard for greatness in the kingdom of God. And he is calling his disciples to a life of humility. Humility is often thought of as a, as a weak virtue. And it's often made out to be uh, in modern day. Uh, although Western culture often despises humility, it does at times honour it. Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great, and this has had a really big impact on the business world. The heart of the book is examining the question, can a good company become a great company? And if so, how do they do it? 
So the book was written over five years uh, and there's a research team who delve into all the different details of the companies and what's going on there and compile all the results to try and get a blueprint or a, or a plan for what makes something go from being good to being great. And it's really interesting, actually, two specific things really stood out and they were character traits that um, belonged to the CEOs of the companies. The first trait was quite obvious, really. It was that they were driven. It's that they would give their all to seeing the company succeed. But the second trait might be a bit less expected is that they were modest, that they were not seeking attention for themselves, but they were self-effacing, that they were humble. Though humility can often be betrayed as being weak, lacking the drive to succeed, true humility actually produces real fruit. The Bible tells us that God loves humility and hates pride. It tells us that God reigns over all. He made and sustains all creation. He is sovereign and his, gain, his gaze is drawn towards the humble. That's amazing, isn't it? His gaze is drawn towards the humble. In fact, he gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. So why does God love humility so much? And what does he have against the pride or against the proud people? This will become clear as we start to define the terms. Uh, actually, defining the terms is actually quite tricky. Um, I don't think there's one. I couldn't find one example, really, uh, in dictionaries or anything like that, that, that seemed to sum it all up together and what the Bible was talking about. So it. This is something that I've collated a bit from the different information that I read. So pride, I've said, is having too high a view of ourselves in relation to God and others, which always leads to self-glorification. So I'll read that again. Pride is having too high a view of ourselves in relation to God and to others, which always leads to self-glorification. And humility, it's an honest, sober view of ourselves in relation to God and others. So humility is an honest, sober view of ourselves in relation to God and others. So pride is all about self-importance, about viewing ourselves more highly than we ought to. And humility isn't about self-abasement. It isn't about seeing ourselves as really small, but it's actually having a sober view, a sober outlook of ourselves and our giftings and of those around us and of our relationship with God. So the issue of pride is we have too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of others, whether man or God. We are too self-focused. I think John Stott is really helpful here. I'm just going to read a quote from him. It says this, Pride is itself the essence of all sin, for it is the stubborn refusal to let God be God and with corresponding ambition to take his place. It is the attempt to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. So I'm just going to read that for us one more time. It says, pride is itself the essence of all sin, for it is the stubborn refusal to let God be God with a corresponding ambition to take his place. It is the attempt to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. It might sound a bit extreme at first, but he's saying that the root of the issue of pride is that we are saying we can manage without God, or in fact, it's putting ourselves in the position of God. And this is sin. In fact, it's a sin that Satan first committed when he tried to overthrow God because he thought he was worthy of all the praise and honour that glory that God was getting. And God, in response, judged him and cast him out of heaven. No wonder why God hates pride 
It is in essence taking the glory and honour that is only due his name and giving it to others. Which doesn't just mean God isn't getting the praise he's due, but we are in essence stealing it, bringing destruction to ourselves. The path of pride leads us away from reliance upon God and down the dark road of self-glorification. So humility is the only befitting response to mankind, as it recognises that God is our maker, our sustainer and acknowledges our desperate need for him. You see, humility isn't just about how you view your performance at work last night or work last week, but it's the access point for the gospel. Take, for example, Mark 10 verse 45. Let's spend a bit of time considering the word ransom in it. So the verse says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So C.J. Mahaney has written an excellent little book on humility. I just want to read a quote from it. It says this. Ransom was a familiar image in the Jewish, Roman and Greek cultures. A ransom represented the payment of a price required for deliverance from various forms of bondage, captivity or condemnation that were common in those days. Moreover, ransom wasn't a term associated with respectability. The term being ransomed was either a slave, an imprisoned enemy or a condemned criminal. Sorry, that was the person being ransomed was either a slave, an imprisoned enemy or a condemned criminal. We can often view uh, the term ransom from what media portrays to us, what films portray to us. And it's like someone rich, someone famous. Uh, it's And it's about someone kidnapping them and asking for a ransom for setting them free. But actually, that, that isn't what ransom here is saying. Here, ransom is associated with the unrespectable, those who are in bondage, captivity or condemnation. Mankind is in captivity to sin. We're in bondage to it. We are trapped. Not only just, not only has our relationship with God been broken due to sin, but as God is just and holy, we are destined to be judged by him and to be found guilty. You might think, I live a good life. Surely this doesn't affect me. But think about the question, who is glorified by your life? If the answer is anything other than God then you too are captive to sin. As you are saying, your dependence for life is not from him who sustains all life, but you are walking in pride. But there is good news, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, he laid down his life for us, suffering the death we deserved, the death reserved for the worst of the condemned. He suffered it, paying the price for our freedom, that the bondage of sin may be broken, that we might be brought back into right relationship with God. So we're all in need of saving. And as long as we walk in pride, we cannot enter into this kingdom of God as we can never acknowledge our need for a saviour. But if we humble ourselves and recognise our need for Jesus, the one who humbly came to serve us, then we can enter into his kingdom, be free from the gift, from the uh, captivity of sin. So humility isn't just an access point into the gospel or an added on bonus for the Christian life, but it's the most prominent virtue of the Christian walk. 
John Stott says this, Perhaps at no point does the gospel come into more violent collision with the world than in its insistence on humility as the paramount virtue. People don't like to be told they need God and that they're not good enough themselves. It hurts their pride. That's why the gospel is so offensive. It shows that we are found wanting. It exposes us for who we really are and we don't like that. Are you starting to understand the importance of humility? Without it, there is no salvation. Yet God in his love, wisdom and humility has made a way for us to enter into right relationship with him. But pride blocks people. God has this great rescue plan for us, but pride is trying to stop us from seeing it and living in the good of it. Pride isn't an enemy that is defeated upon our salvation, but it needs to be continually fought and slayed throughout our lives. James 4 says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And as we humble ourselves before God and recognise our need for him, he pours out his grace upon us. Pride can come in ever so subtly at first and worm its way into our lives. We need to be on guard against it. We need to make sure that we keep our dependence upon God, not falling into the trap of doing things on our own strength. Remember, God opposes the proud, but he gives, he generously gives grace to the humble. If we start to walk in pride, we aren't allowing ourselves to walk in all the grace that God has for us. Are there areas in your life that you need to repent of pride and freshly admit to God you need for him and his grace? I know writing this sermon has been challenging for me. Pride likes to appear all too often in my life. Let's remember, though, that pride isn't belittling ourselves as we are made in God's image and we are adopted into God's family. If we belittle ourselves, we're doing the same thing that pride does. We are actually focusing on self and taking away God's glory. The key is to be sober. Romans 12 puts it like this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think of himself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So let's be sober. Let's make an honest assessment of ourselves in relation to God and man. And let's follow the humble example of Jesus. And who did not, who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's lay down our lives in service to those around us, honouring them, loving them, letting our dependence upon Christ have its mark on us, making us servants of all for the honour and glory of his name. Amen.